Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled An Endless Life. Nietzsche once famously declared, God is dead. The problem with that statement is that it was only true for three days. God in the person of Jesus actually died, but he ever lives. And now we who are once dead in our trespasses and sins have every reason to rejoice because if he lives, then we too can live. And his life is an endless and inextinguishable life. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. This message is beyond me, and I mean that. Uh, this week I felt like I hit a main artery in Scripture, and I had so much Scripture to deal with that it was almost overwhelming. I was in the midst of a flood attempting to you know, bring a pitcher, pitcher of water to you this morning, and yet, how do I just take one pitcher of water out of a vast flood of truth? Uh, this message is massive. I stood in awe this week, and yet I feel like this is a disservice to even what I saw. I have no idea how to bear witness of what I've seen in the cross and the empty tomb as I meditated upon it this week. i Meditated upon it every day of my life, basically. That's my job description. That's what I do. And yet, this week, I beheld something that was so far beyond, and yet, I don't have articulation for it. So, there's part of me that just wants to put down the microphone and say, so, that's it. And yet, God has chosen to use humble vessels to relay his grandeur. And though he knows that we are incapable of articulating its vastness, He still chooses, willfully chooses to use a vehicle like this to declare his truth. It's bewildering. Why doesn't he just come down and send an angel? It'd be far better than me. How about he comes down personally and speaks it? Instead, he has condescended to allow us to bear witness. An endless life. I had a different title, and that was an unstoppable life, but what I wanted to make sure we held on to is that the life we are referring to is not just ours, because an endless life, by the way, when you enter into Jesus Christ, when you partake of his person by faith, you have an endless life. And that's different than eternal life, by the way, which means it has no beginning or no end. You do have the eternal life as well, but this is a statement used once in Scripture to describe the life of Jesus Christ, and it calls it an endless life. And the word endless isn't, endless doesn't quite capture it, and so I'm going to go through that in just a second. But this is the life of God. This is the life of Jesus. This is the unstoppable, the inextinguishable life. It will gain that which it goes after. Nothing can hinder it. It's life, and life triumphs over the grave. Here's our one use of that word in the Greek in the New Testament, Hebrews 7. In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. According to the power of an endless life, this priest has come. This priest is Jesus, and he has come according, and according isn't necessarily a word that we typically would use today. It means ushering forth. He comes ushering forth in power 
But what power? The power of a life that is unstoppable, inextinguishable, indissoluble, unable to be compromised. That is the power with which he came to this earth. He may have looked weak. He may have donned the garment of humanity. But he came in the power of an endless life. Here's our word for endless. Akatalatas. Akatalatas. I did get it right. Akatalatas. It means indissoluble, which means it cannot break down. Inextinguishable. It cannot be put out. Unstoppable. Unable to be destroyed. Unable to be hindered. Everlasting. And then there's our word. Endless. But how do you properly say that in the English language? To us, endless just means it's like eternal. It's sort of a swap out word. However, I think for us, inextinguishable or unstoppable or unable to be destroyed makes more sense to us in our American mindsets. It's something that cannot be stopped. Something, it's like a flame that cannot be put out. A priest who has come ushering forth in the power of Akatalatos life. This sounds like a step backwards, doesn't it? Satan had the power of death. And you'll notice in the grammatical emphasis here, had the power of death. There is something that we are born into. We are born into a reality. And in this reality, things are fairly gloomy and dark. It's typically known as the bad news. You see, Christians herald what's known as the good news. But you know the good news has no context unless you understand the bad news? There is a life that has come, but why did that life come? It came to deal with death. Satan has the power of death, as it says in Scripture. Him that had the power of death, that is the devil. What's he doing with it? Well, I don't know how I can explain that, and I don't think I want to spend time this morning attempting to explain how the enemy has the power of death. We know that he was the first to sin, and that he went his errant way, and God seemed to carve out or scissor cut out a kingdom known as darkness. The way I would describe that is a house that was perfectly clean, and suddenly there's a piece of trash. And so he made for himself, out of his house, a place to stick the trash, known as darkness. And then there is an outer darkness when God takes out the trash and throws it into the lake of fire. But there is a trash can known as darkness. And guess who is the king of the trash can? I don't know if anyone would really want to brag about that. However, it's Satan. And when we agree with Satan, we seem to come under this power. It's the power of death. Now, here's something I want to emphasize. This is a little more of an upturn in our thoughts. Jesus has the power of life. And it's an endless life, an unstoppable life, and one that, as you will see as we progress, wins over death. Death cannot put it out. Death cannot stop it. Death cannot extinguish it. So Jesus has both the jurisdictional power of life and the strength power of life. There seems to be two different powers enunciated in Scripture. One is a power sort of like a king has over a nation. And the other is a power that you could say, like Samson had over the Philistines. You can't explain it, but it's the force of an army. It is strength. Jesus had both jurisdictional power, ruling authority, and he also had dunamis, the power of a great army, a great host. He has the power of life. 
For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. Jesus is the power of life. He quickens whom he will. Quickens means to be made alive. He makes alive whom he will. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Therefore does my Father love me, says Jesus, because I laid down my life, listen to this line, that I might take it again. Who's in control here? Listen to this line. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. Did you hear that? I have power to lay down my life. Now listen to this next line. And I have power to take it again. Jesus has the power of life. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus can only do that which he is given by the Father. He is perfectly submitted. But the Father has given him this power to lay down his life and to take it up again. Death holds a lawful claim. The soul that sins, it shall die. And again in verse 20, the soul that sins, it shall die. Remember the very beginning? You eat of this fruit, eat of this tree, and you, in the day you do it, you shall surely die. It's called the law of sin and death. The law that is stipulated in the New Testament that we are under, when it says we are under the law, is the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. Death now rules over you. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 3, for all have sinned. So all deserve the wage of death. Every single one of us in here. The statement in scripture is that sin equals death. All have sinned. Therefore all must die. Wherefore, by as, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the bad news, in a very simple enunciation, sin, or the violation of God's law, and that's a very simplistic understanding of sin. I could go a lot deeper than that, but for today's sake, we're going to keep it simple. It's a rebellion. We violated God's law. He gave a command and we went the other way. Sin, the violation of God's law, entered the world by one man, known as Adam. We are considered in the New Testament to be in Adam. It's called our old man, our old disposition. We must get out of Adam. Somehow we must put off this old man and enter into a new man. However, this is the bad news. Let's focus there. So sin entered by one man, Adam. Death entered the world by sin. That is precisely what this previous scripture said. And death by sin. You'll see it in the second line. Death entered the world by sin, or the violation of God's law. And all have sinned, and all are under the just sentence of death. That's just fact. That's the way it is. It's called bad news. And bad news is necessary for us to fully grasp the good news. Understanding the legal power of the devil. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him, we're speaking of Jesus, this is that typically called the temptation in the wilderness. So he took him up onto a high mountain and showed unto Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, 
Isn't this an interesting statement? Here's Jesus, and he's God. And yet Satan seems to have something. Satan seems to have some authority that he's referring to here. All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. Basically saying, legally, I have this. The word is exousia. It's a legal territory, a legal right to rule over it. By legality and by the law of even God. You know this, Jesus. This is mine. It has been delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. It's mine to give. It's mine, 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 says Satan. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. If we were to fast forward, all things have been given unto Jesus now. All things are under his feet. And so even that which once belonged to the enemy no longer is his rightfully. But we see that he has a right to something, and there's some legal territory that he has. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. You see, Satan has a power. And Jesus has come to turn us from that power unto something new, unto light. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. He that commits sin is of the devil. You might not have thought of yourself as being of the devil, but if you commit sin, that means you are of his kingdom. You are of his nature. You are his. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. I love this concept. You see, this word for works of the devil is the word ergon. It's the same works of faith without works is dead. It's like a business operation. Jesus was about his father's business. Satan has a business, and it's to control your souls. It's to rule over you with the power of sin and death. And yet, Jesus has come that he might destroy that business of the devil. I love that. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. We are, when we sin, adopted, legally adopted by the devil. You have a father known as the devil. You are legally bound in his kingdom. This is not good news, by the way. This is very sour news. However, until we understand our state and our condition, we don't know how to respond to it. The great redemption, the amazing work of unstoppable life. Jesus might taste death for everyone, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So redemption, which typically is understood as a transaction or a payment. You see, there was some type of debt that we had. And I'm going to explain that in just a second. And it seems that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, that has abolished death. The two agendas. So let's go to the cross. We have something that is taking place on the cross. And it is very significant to each one of us. And we could, I'm going to say it has two agendas at the cross. 
And it's enunciated here by Jesus in John 10.10. The thief comes, not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So we have a thief, otherwise known as Satan, who has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. His agenda at the cross is to destroy. It's to annihilate. For whatever reason, if we were to get inside the mind of Satan, who, by the way, is deceived, and so he can't see clearly. When you walk in deception, you don't walk in the truth, you actually deceive yourself. And you live as the fool lives. And you build a foundation upon sand. You don't recognize that when winds and rains come, your house will collapse. Satan doesn't see this any more than many of us have seen it in our life. That we are building a house that is unstable because it's not based in truth. And so as a result, Satan, in all of his wisdom, his twisted wisdom, is motivated by a bloodthirst. And when he sees an opportunity in the fullness of time... He goes after it, to destroy the Son of God. And yet, what has Jesus come to do? To bring life, and that more abundant. You see, God is motivated by truth. He lives in reality. He is perfectly sane. And so as a result, in this situation where the enemy may have had a false sense of victory, actually he was being undermined and destroyed in a manner that... Never before had the universe ever seen. God, the king of righteousness. God initiates the rescue, the plan of redemption. The cross is God's idea, which is interesting. Because it sure does seem like it's the enemy's, doesn't it? But the cross is God's idea. God is the one that initiates this rescue. He's the one that initiates the plan of salvation. He has it in his mind. It's not that the enemy concocted it and God responded to it. God, in his foreknowledge, saw it. He knew what must happen. Back in the Garden of Eden, he's making that clear. It's the seed of this woman. And the seed of this woman, her heel will be, its heel will be bruised, but that heel will crush the head of the serpent. It's already forecasted. So the king of righteousness, the king of righteousness, the king of all perfection, law is righteousness. You know that God is the giver of the law. And what he gave when he gave the law was the perfect stipulation of his nature. And unless you are like me, you cannot enter my presence, God is saying. And what he's doing with that law is he's enunciating to us that we can't save ourselves because we are not like this. However, for God to rescue us from the power of sin, which by the way, the only reason sin has power over us is because we violated the law. But to correct this problem, you know that the law must be perfectly fulfilled? You know that God cannot rescue us by violating his law? Haven't you ever had that thought? It's like, why doesn't he just annihilate the devil? Why doesn't he just forgive us and say, hey, there's no big deal here? Why does he need to come down? Why does he need to suffer? Why does he need to die? You know that there's a law of redemption in the law? (laughs) That there's a way that you can properly redeem a slave? And if you follow that law, you walk in perfect righteousness. Do you know that the devil has no grip on something that is perfectly righteous? No, grip. He cannot take it. He cannot have it. It is not part of his kingdom. And so if righteousness is fulfilled, the devil loses his grip. He has no more power over it. This is very important. So the law must be matched. The demands of perfect righteousness met. The just punishment for sin satisfied. The curse born and carried. The full effects of death absorbed. Must be. Otherwise, you're sunk. 
you have no ability to save yourself. But to be saved, those things have to be true. The law of God must be matched. The demands of perfect righteousness met. Have you ever studied the demands of perfect righteousness? Perfection? Without flaw? Without sin? No guile in your mouth? Not even one slip? Not even one hint of flesh in your life? The just punishment for sin must be satisfied. What's that? Death. It's literally the, the curse born and carried. Literally the wrath of God, the forsaking of God. Death means separation from God. That has to be carried? How in the world do you plan on doing all this? We can't. We have no recourse to our problem. Unless there is some divine intervention, we cannot save ourselves. As Paul says, who can save us from this body of death? His conclusion, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The full effects of death absorbed. The hour the time appointed by God. And so this is just an evidence that God is in control of this whole cross thing. He calls it the hour. There seems to be an hour. And he refers to it over and over and over again. There's an hour or a time out of all of history, out of all creation, there's an hour that God has chosen. And his son is born right before that hour and grows up unto a full maturity. And in the fullness of time, his son is made ready as a lamb of sacrifice. So now, this is Jesus talking, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Listen to Jesus' statement. Before this cause came I unto this hour. Why is Jesus here? For this hour. It's for this cause. He is here for this cause and for this hour. Then Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come. What a strange statement. He knew his time was coming. The hour was not yet there. And so Jesus said, my time is not yet come. And then he says again, then said Jesus unto them, my time is not yet come. My time is not yet full come. No man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, says Jesus, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. I love that last line, by the way. The prince of this world is coming. When did the prince of this world happen to come? When did this prince of this world strike out? It just so happened that he came and hatched his plan and entered into Judas at the very hour that God had appointed. God's in control, and yet the Satan, Satan has a machination. He has a conspiracy that he's been ruminating on. He's been sucking on it like a lollipop. And he finds the moment where there seems to be a breach, there seems to be an opening. Well, guess who created the opening? God did. He's like, oops. Oh, the door's unlocked. And Satan, in his bloodthirst, walks through it to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had to be betrayed by one of his closest to be the Messiah. Jesus had to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That 30 pieces of silver had to be thrown down on the temple floor and then it had to be picked back up and used to buy a potter's field. His very enemies fulfilled his messiahship. Who's in control? God is. However, there's a very real enemy. And God is playing that enemy to his end because that enemy really has a legal power. That enemy really has a legal right. However, God is playing in his truth and in his wisdom. He is playing that enemy to his own harm. 
I love this last line. The prince of this world is coming, and he hath nothing in me. He has no grounds in me. No legal grounds in me. And so when Satan lashes out at Jesus, he actually has no position to do it. And I don't know exactly how all the legal ramifications of that work, but it somehow hurt the devil to do that. Power in the hour. This is what it says. Therefore, does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again? No man takes it from me. Now, just let's focus there for a second. No man takes it from me. Jesus wasn't taken by the devil. Jesus gave his life. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is, the, is, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, darkness, and Jesus is even baiting, it, baiting them for it. This is your hour. This is your hour, the power of darkness, seems to be in control. And Jesus submits himself to this power of death, the power of darkness. Why would anyone do that? Seems absolutely crazy. Satan, the prince of darkness, behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The hour is at hand. The hour has come. And what is one of the evidences of that? Well, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Isn't it funny that God's great hour, when he will work his redemption, is all wrapped in such a testimony as, oh yeah, you will recognize because the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. What, what kind of plan is this? Why would it work that way? Jesus gave himself into the hands of sinners. The chief of whom is the devil... This was the sinner's hour, the hour of the power of darkness. And with demonic bloodlust, the sinner went after the destruction of the sun. And for the first time, the sun didn't escape out of his hand. He's silent as a lamb. You know, one of the statements that has been said about a lamb, even when they're brought to slaughter, is that they will do whatever their shepherd asks of them. And they will even stretch out their neck. I've never seen it, so I can't testify to this personally. Stretch out their neck on the chopping block. What we see is a lamb who is walking unto slaughter. And though it is unjust, if you want to look at it this way, it's unjust for that little lamb to take our place. I mean, let's go back before the cross when the Jews would literally sacrifice a morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. The Day of Atonement where literally the Brook Kidron would overflow with blood. There was so much blood flowing. Well, that was innocent blood. Those lambs didn't do anything. They're just being cute and fluffy. And yet they stretched out their necks so that you could live. And now we have Jesus who submits himself into the hands of the sinner. And he is literally put in the control of wicked men. And he's silent unto slaughter. And this time the son didn't escape out of his hand. Do you know that before this they could not lay hands on him? They, no matter what they did, he'd slip out of there. They could not harm him. They conspired to destroy him, but they could not. And now suddenly they can? And they didn't think it through very clearly. They didn't know what they were participating in. But this lamb had to die. And what day did they hap happen to grab him? Passover? The prince of darkness, the one that had the power of death, wielded his power against Christ. Satan only has power over those who sinned, those cursed, 
So Jesus became a curse for us. He submitted himself under the hatred of all hell's minions and bore the full weight of their insanity and barbarity. He silently bore the cruel death, our just consequence. It says in Luke 22, Then Satan entered into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. See, Satan had an agenda that day. Remember I said there's two agendas? Satan had an agenda. And you could say, no, God was in control of the cross. Well, who would be right then? Was God in control of the cross or was Satan? Well, all we know is that both of them had an agenda. And I would like to defer to the fact that God is in control. However, it is a misstatement to say that Satan had nothing to do with it. He is being leveraged in his bloodlust to fulfill the actual purposes of God. And Satan entered into Judas. Jesus didn't enter into Judas and say, betray me. Satan entered into Judas with hostile intent to destroy the Son of God. This was not a work of the Spirit. This was a work of the flesh. This is a work of demonic darkness. God submitted himself unto this. Consider this. It was the enemy that entered Judas. It was the enemy that moved the priests and the elders of Israel to barter for Christ's betrayal and his subsequent crucifixion. It was the enemy that inspired the cruel taunts, tortures, and horrifying abuses. It was the enemy that chose the nails, the means of death, and that cast lots and divided Christ's garments. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says that it was the princes of this world that crucified Jesus. And Peter in Acts 4.10, speaking to the rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, declared that they, in fact, were the ones who crucified Jesus of Nazareth. But what about God? It would seem that God himself was the mastermind behind the cross. But it says that the princes of this world crucified him. It says that wicked men crucified him. It says, when Peter's speaking in in Acts, he says, you crucified him. And he wasn't speaking to a whole bunch of righteous individuals. You crucified him, which is us. We, the sinner. He was betrayed into the hands of sinners, and this is what sinners do to righteousness. We did it. We brought about death. That's what sin does. It brings about death. We did it. And yet, pause for a moment. Is God caught off guard? He sends forth his son into this world. And he knew what he was doing. And he protected his son and shielded his son. And then when the hour came, he removed his protection. And the Son of God was not caught off guard saying, What, Father, you've removed your protection? I'm vulnerable now. He submitted himself to it. What do you think Gethsemane was? It was a realization that the protection of God was being removed. And he said, Yet not my will, but thine. And he submitted himself into the hands of sinners, under the purposes of God. It would seem that God himself was the mastermind behind the cross. For in Isaiah 53.10, it declares that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And in Zechariah 13.7, the Lord of hosts says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. In a context that is clearly speaking of the cross. And over and over again throughout the New Testament, it is clear that the Father was pleased to send forth his Son into this world in order to make a sacrifice for sins, to redeem us from the wicked hands of death and to satisfy the just requirements of the law and thusly become our righteousness in order that we might be saved. But how did God bruise him? One of the challenges we face in dealing with the cross, and by the way, you don't have to have an in-depth understanding of any of these things to be able to look at the cross and say, that's my salvation. 
In a very simple sense, we can just turn to the cross and say, that's what saved me. That's where my redemption is found. He paid the price. It's that simple. It doesn't need to be complex. Did God crucify Jesus? Or did the devil crucify Jesus? The devil crucified Jesus. But God sent forth his son to that cross. How did God bruise him? By giving him over. Offering him up into the hands of the sinner. The one who holds the power of darkness. The one who wields the power of death. And by restraining to intervene. By Jesus becoming a curse. By Jesus being made sin. And as a sacrificial lamb absorbing the full weight of consequence and retribution. That death is legally allowed to bring to that which is cut off from the holy presence. And the just and legal protections of righteousness. Leveraging Satan's bloodlust. I don't know how to describe it in a more clear way. It's a hard thing to describe, but the enemy has a desire to bring death, even upon the righteous. He actually has no hold on those that are righteous. However, he still wants to destroy them. And he leans in with all of his weight, and he's pressing, 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 tempting, 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 baiting, baiting, baiting. And then suddenly that door is pulled away, and the enemy comes flying in the room. And in this situation, you see the enemy desiring to destroy, thirsting to destroy the Son of God. He hates him with a venom. If there's any threat he has, it's that. And he doesn't know what his agenda is. He just wants to destroy it. And so, the, so God leverages Satan's bloodlust. God leveraged all the enemy's bloodlust straight into the clear revelation of his Messiahship. As Christ was breathing his last, he shouted the first line of Psalm 22, as if to say, Israel, behold your Messiah. I am he. I am the fulfillment of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. That's what Jesus speaks from the cross. You know what that would have done in every Jew's mind? Triggered Psalm 22. What does Psalm 22 say? They divided my garments and cast lots for my clothing. They pierced my hands and my feet. It's talking about him. He's saying, "I'm, I'm fulfilling it right now. You are meaning this for evil, but God means it for good. Whoa! The great deceiver was greatly deceived. And in what seemed like the enemy's moment of triumph and victory, over the silent as a lamb Jesus, he, the enemy, was stripped powerless and rendered legally and practically impotent. The prince of this world is judged, it says in John 16. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. And crucified our old man with him on the cross. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Therefore let not sin reign in your mortal body. That you would obey it in the lust thereof. Crucified in weakness. Jesus submits himself. Now this plan seems rather sketchy. First of all it's a little sketchy that he'd be born a baby. Doesn't he realize? Doesn't God realize that there's an enemy? That wants to destroy the son of God? And if that Messiah is going to be born, the enemy has tried to destroy him from the very beginning. And so it's proven that the enemy wants to get him. Herod kills all the young boys. But somehow God awakens Joseph in and through a dream to take Mary and his little boy Jesus to Egypt. And so there is safety, there is security always over Jesus' life. Jesus is preserved and even though they mock him and even though they ridicule him, no one can touch him. That is until now. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Isn't that fascinating just to think of the God of the universe crucified 
in weakness. The fool knows not the backside of the matter. There's a statement in Scripture. See, in the, in the Hebrew understanding, each of the body parts of our, our being have a meaning. So the forehead is like uh, a determination or a, a, what would be, adamant mentality. In other words, your forehead is flint. That means you are determined. Your neck is sort of an issue of belligerence. And if you have a stiff neck, that means you are uh, unwilling to bend. Uh, and so all these different aspects of the body mean something in the Hebrew culture. The back is symbolic of that which is behind. And so when you are doing something, you don't know what follows. And a fool does not know the backside of the matter. When he moves in this direction of foolishness, he doesn't recognize that death awaits him. You see, there is a way that seems right unto a fool, but it leads to death. Death follows on the backside. And so the word for that is aharith, the backside of a matter, that which follows the end of a chosen course. And so it says in Psalm 37, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright. For the end, or the aharith, of that man is peace. You see, the perfect man, his course, who's the perfect man, by the way? Jesus! The end of that man is a complete obliteration of all that stands against him. It's peace. The end of that man, the end of the perfect man, the aharith, the backside of his business, is peace. However, but the transgressors, the sinners, shall be destroyed together. The end or the aharith of the wicked shall be cut off. Well, that's a foreshadow if I've ever heard one. You see, but Satan doesn't see the backside of the matter. He's the classic picture of the fool in Proverbs. He, there's a way that seems right to him, but it leads to death. I gave, this is Jesus. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I, did, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. While they're beating his back, Satan doesn't recognize the backside of the matter. For a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. He was putting the back on the wrong person. He's putting the back on the perfect man. He's putting the, the rod on the back of the perfect man. That's the, back for, that's the rod for fools. A fool is the one that receives the rod. A rod for the back of the fool's back. Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. Satan didn't see the backside of the matter. Jesus is receiving an unjust penalty for something that he didn't do. And in the process, the fool is really, in the meantime, the fool, Satan, is the one who is getting his due. And on his back were the stripes and the judgments. Which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, had they known what Jesus was up to, had they known what was in the mind of God, had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't see the backside of the matter. You ever thought about that? Why would they participate in this? This was only killing themselves. They didn't see it. They didn't understand it. How often do we not see it? How often do we not understand it? But let's not diminish our God. Our God saw it. He understood the entire while. And he leveraged the bloodlust of the enemy. And though it really was the enemy that worked that havoc upon him, it was really the enemy that brought the scourge. It was really the enemy that pierced his hands and his feet. They were fulfilling at the same time all righteousness and everything that was true about the Messiah. They were errands, errand boys for truth. Though they had a completely opposite agenda. Jesus, the only possible solution 
There had to be an Adam without sin, a priest that must stand in the place of others. Sin entered the world through one man. God needs a man, but he has to be a perfect man. And that Adam, without sin, it must be a high priest that bears a spotless, satisfying offering. And this is Jesus. This is what it says of Jesus. He knew no sin. In him was and is no sin. He did no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He was and ever is the Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot. He did nothing amiss. Certainly he was a righteous man. The prince of this world had nothing, no legal grounds of condemnation in him. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was just. The ransom, the redemption. A ransom is a payment, so is a redemption. The words are oftentimes interchanged. We know that Jesus is our redeemer. He paid a price. Have you ever even wondered who did he pay the price to? What's he paying? Is he coming up to the devil and making an exchange? And saying, all right, here's my blood, and I want all the hostages. Did he give his blood to Satan? How did this work? Who was paid? Not just, so the ransom and the redemption, not just the moral requirements of the law and Adam without sin, but the fulfillment of the just penalty and compensation of the law, death, curse, wrath, separation. How in the world is any Adam going to pay this? See, God cannot steal. And thus, God cannot override the jurisdiction of the devil or the legal territory of the devil and steal from him those children that are condemned under the law of sin and death. Heavenly justice demands due payment, equitable compensation, appropriate satisfaction of punishment. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. It's slave for slave, body for body. God satisfied the legal demands of his own law by giving up his own eye for our eye, his own tooth for our tooth, his own blood for our blood, his own body for our body. He became obedient unto death and thus gave up his life for our life. He took on himself the equitable compensation, the due payment for our sin, the just and satisfying punishment for our disobedience. He paid it with his own body and blood, the perfect body and blood for all those in legal bondage. Which one of these is true? I want you to listen closely. Typically what we do as Christians is we divide up the cross and we don't fully understand what happened there. A few options to choose from. Number one, the Father sent his only son, Jesus, to the cross to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. God is the one that masterminded the cross. The cross was all from the Father. The Father orchestrated the cross. The, the, you know, the Father built the cross. The Father scourged Jesus. The Father pinned him to it. That, that was the Father, wasn't it? And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Well, that, it seems to say that. The Father sent the Son. But did the Father crucify him? Interesting question. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, Jesus. And by his stripes we are healed. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. For he hath made him, speaking of the Father, made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So can you understand the argument which says the Father is the one that put together the whole affair? I think that would be a reasonable statement. However, I have two other options. Number two, Jesus gave up his life. You see, whether or not the Father had a plan, Jesus was the one that gave up his life. Jesus is saying, I'll take this. I'll take the blow. Father, you stay where you're at. I'll do this. And so Jesus gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. He offered his life as a ransom for sinners. In other words, we could say, no, Jesus was just sent. He didn't have a choice. But this one says, no, Jesus did have a choice, and he agreed. 
And he went and he offered up his life as a ransom for sinners. He tasted the death of the cross in our stead. He died that we might live. So aren't you guys getting mad at my choices? You're like, why in the world are you splitting these up, Eric, as if I have to choose one? Well, that's the whole point. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. He offered up himself, it says in Hebrews 7. He hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, the propitiation for our sins. But now, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Okay, third option. The arch sinner and the sinful bruised Jesus, wounded Jesus, scourged Jesus, mocked Jesus, and ultimately crucified Jesus on the Passover and brought an unjust death upon a perfectly righteous life. It was sinners that crucified Jesus. And some of you could say, no, 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 no. Well, I think we've already sort of accomplished something in that first two. The father bruised the son. The father gave up. Jesus is the one that did all this. Didn't they build the whole thing and, and die upon it? The arch sinner and the sinful bruised Jesus. Who actually took the cat of nine tails and ripped open his back? Was that the father? Was that the son figuring out how to do that to himself? Or was that sinner's? which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know what? There's enough evidence in Scripture to make it very clear that sinners crucified Jesus. The wicked crucified Jesus. He was in the hands of evil men, sinful men. Satan had the power of death, and he wielded it. So what is the answer? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, says Peter, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Yes, all three are true. In other words, to understand the, the cross, we must understand the brilliance of God in how he does things. You know, the enemy means something for evil. God turns it to good. That doesn't mean God is inspiring the enemy to do the evil. But God turns it for good. The trifold truths. The Father sent, Jesus gave, and Satan crucified him. They're all true, by the way. How about this? The father was pleased. Jesus was triumphant. And Satan was crushed. Oh, and here's one more. The father raised up the son. Jesus took his exalted seat. And Satan's power is no more. So, it's not that we are exalting the person of Satan in this. We are acknowledging that he has a legal right. And Jesus acknowledged it even by the cross. There was a redemption, a rescuing of slaves. He went and he accomplished it. Who gets the payment? So, was there a handoff to the devil? Is the law like someone you pay? Is the father the one you pay? Who, when when there's a redemption, there's a payment. Who gets the payment? God the father gets the payment. And the righteousness of the law is satisfied and perfectly fulfilled. And then in receiving it, Satan's legal claims are nullified over our lives. Now listen to this. Jesus took the payment, his own blood, and he entered the holy of holies in heaven. And there's called a propitiatorium. It's the Ark of Covenant, the mercy seat. And there the the high priest would sprinkle the blood and it satisfied, it atoned for the sins of a nation. And Jesus took that payment of his own blood and satisfied what? The law, 
He satisfied righteousness with a perfect, spotless offering. He said, my blood, that they would be set free. What legal right does the enemy have? Because he could say, hey, you owe me something. No, the only right you have was given you because they sinned. And because of unrighteousness, they are cut off and put in that trash can known as darkness. However, if they are deemed righteous before the law, you, Satan, have no legal right over them. And if they are clothed in righteousness, they are set free and redeemed from the clutches of darkness and set free unto righteousness to live in the presence of God. Because it must be pure and spotless to live in the presence of God. And yet we are not. Satan has right only to the degree that you walk in sin. If you are clothed in righteousness, the devil has no more lawful claim over you. But we didn't die, he did. You see, you are deserving of death. That is the just consequence of the law. He died. He died and satisfied the law in your place. You know what it says in the Old Testament in the law, for the, under the laws of redemption, that a slave to be redeemed from his master, if he can save up his own money, you know that he can buy his freedom? If you can somehow save up perfect righteousness, if you can live in the perfect way that the law demands, you too could purchase yourself out of this bondage. And yet we can't. We can't. But we must die. That's the other thing is there must be death to satisfy. We are deserving of death. You sin, you die. The law of sin and death. We're under it. We must die. But we didn't die. How can we live unless we die? But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He satisfied that. He died. And in his death, your death is satisfied. Faith. In the most simple way, I do not want to overcomplicate the cross. What I want us to do is, as little children, look upon the cross and say, that did it. That did it. Jesus, his work, saves me. I cannot save myself. Whatever this penalty is, whatever debt I owe, I can't pay it. But I know he did pay it. You don't have to know all the complexities of it to say he paid it. He did it in full. And I am set free by his work. No longer does the devil have any jurisdictional authority over my life. The just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now the just shall live by faith. What is just? Just is right with the law. Those who are justified by the righteous work of Jesus Christ. He did it and he took that atoning blood. And he brought it into the Holy of Holies. Into a very real temple. Into the very presence of God. And it satisfied God. Is that not enough for you? You are justified by the blood of Jesus. Just with the law. No more condemnation. No more penalty looms over you. You are justified by that blood. However... Those that are just, if you truly are just, how are you living? You're living by faith. How did you gain that justification in the first place? By faith. 
The just live by faith. It's just a matter of fact in the Bible. The justified, those that are in the blood of Jesus, those that are clothed, those that hang on to that blood and say, this is my salvation. It was this work. Jesus' blood is what saves me. It's those that cling to that, the just, that live by faith. And what's your faith in? That clothing is sufficient. His blood did it. His work is sufficient for me. So you live clinging to that righteousness of his, and you are just. Faith in what? What are we believing in? In him. Our faith is not in a prayer. Our faith is not in a plan of salvation. Our faith is not in the fact that we came forward in a church service once and said some things. What does our confidence lie in? Our confidence lies in him. Our faith is not in a feeling, in a tingle up our spine. Our faith is in his work. And by the way, his work is actual, factual. It is not wishful thinking. Oh, I just wish that we had a Savior, and so we imagine a Savior and believe in some imaginary Savior. He's real. He is the I am. He is who he is. He's eternal. He's always been, and he always will be. And he did the work, and we simply look to that work, and we say, it is enough. One of the illustrations I use a lot is the concept of being in Christ, because that's what Paul says over and over and over again. You must be in. Clothing is what Jesus is. It's called the clothing of righteousness. And if your clothing is all sitting there in a pile next to you on the floor, the clothing is not doing its work. It is not giving you its virtue. Because you could be near it and you can esteem it, but it isn't over you, covering you. And clothing must be on you. And you must be in it to experience its real virtue and power in your life. And in this situation, Jesus is the garment of salvation. He's the robe of righteousness. He is the house of blood that we enter into. He is that refuge, that strong tower. And that strong tower is the blood of Jesus. It is his life. You know that blood in the Hebrew culture is life? Remember the start of this message? The endless life. The blood is life. And we are clothed in his life, his work. And when we come to Jesus, we simply say, your work is sufficient. You did it. I believe that you are able to save me and that that work on the cross is my salvation. And we are clothed in him. Our faith is in him and his great work. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Death hath no more dominion over him. Now you notice it says, it doesn't say death will have no more dominion over you. And you could say, well, I'm sure it does somewhere else. Yeah, it does. But I want you to focus on something. Why does it not have dominion over you? It's because he's the high priest. And as the high priest, he is representative of us. And what he does, it's sort of like he opens up his life to us like a door. And we enter into him. We enter into his work. We enter into his righteousness. And as a result, listen to this. Death hath no more dominion over him. If you're in him... What's your relationship with death? It has no more ruling power over your life. Because you are in him. And death hath no more dominion over him. He has died and risen again, and he dieth no more. Who are you found in? What is your position? You're in Christ. And death hath no more dominion over him. For as in Adam all die, 
Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. What's your position? Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Without exception. Death no longer has dominion. You are in Christ and therefore you will live. It is a fact. Because you are in life itself. You can't help but live. The nullification of the power of sin. The legal argument of Satan. So Satan stands up in the courtroom, you know, gets sort of limber uh, before the bar of heaven and says, uh, <clears throat> the wages of sin is death. Everyone in the courtroom goes, ooh, good point, good point. If they sin, they die. And everyone's going, he's got some serious moxie behind his words there because that's exactly what it says in Scripture. He's appealing to Scripture. The only time Satan appeals to Scripture is when it's to his benefit. If they sin, they die. They sinned. I get them. I have the power of death. The jurisdiction of death is my domain. So they are mine. They are under my jurisdiction and are thusly my slaves, or legal property of me is their lawful master. Goes and sits down. And everyone's like, well, what what do you say to that? I mean, it's just the law given. Satan's appealing to the law. He's called the accuser of the brethren. What do you think he's accusing with? The law. He's carrying the law against your soul, and he's saying, how you doing? Yep. You're not all that, are you? You're mine. You belong to me. You sinned. You die. I rule over death. You're mine. I'm your father. You see, the term is adoptio. Back in that time, the concept for adoption was a legal transaction. It was more like a slave relationship. And so it wasn't some kindred, you know, papa type of relationship with Satan. He has legal rulership over your life to do with you as he wants. You're a slave to sin. The legal response of God. Well, uh, Satan, there's something that you may not be fully abreast of. And that is that the wages of righteousness is life and grace. And Satan sits down. So... If they believe, they live. And he might stand up and say, yeah, but they sin, they die. Yes, that's called the law of sin and death. But have you ever heard of the law of believe and live? They believed, so I get them. And could you imagine the enemy's like, what? No, no way, where's that? I have the power of life and grace. The jurisdiction of life is my domain. So they are mine. They are under my jurisdiction of grace and are thusly my children, legal property of me as their lawful master. No longer are they slaves to sin, but they are slaves unto righteousness. And they are now able to bring glory to me. All things are made new. All things are set right. And Satan could be sitting there staring befuddled going, how? How did this work? And all of us, whether we can explain it or not, all the legalities of the situation, we all look to the cross and say it was right there. And he goes, what? How did that do it? And he's thinking, that was my best moment. I had him right where I wanted him. And you fulfilled everything that must be fulfilled to set your captives free.
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And the gavel goes down in heaven. <laughs> Case settled. Those that believe live. It's a higher law than the law of sin and death. Because when you believe, you believe in the work of righteousness. You believe in Jesus and he is your high priest, your representative before the throne. And though in one man all died, in one man all will live. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. The bad news, just in uh, a quick review. Sin entered the world by one man, Adam. Death entered the world by sin, the violation of God's law. And all have sinned, and all are under the just sentence of death. The good news, in a very simple enunciation. Righteousness entered the world by one man. Life, or the gift of grace, entered the world by the clothing of righteousness, by Jesus Christ's very life. All that believe shall partake of the life that is eternal and the life that is unstoppable. He that liveth. Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. The redeemed of the Lord say, this is our response, for I know that my redeemer lives. The Lord lives. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because I live, you will live also. The redeemed of the Lord say in response, For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Jesus says, I am life. Of course, you know I had some dot, dot, dots. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But let's focus here. I am life. The redeemed of the Lord say, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those of us who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. For such a high priest was fitting for us. That's an understatement. For such a high priest is fitting for us. It was the perfect match. In fact, it's the only match. There's only one puzzle piece on this whole table that could possibly go into that spot. And it was divine. Manna come down from heaven. The manna puzzle piece. That works. It's the only thing that could satisfy. It's fitting Look at that. For such a high priest was fitting, was perfect, was the match, was the solution, was the redemption, was the sanctification. This high priest, who is, it had to be holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and he has become higher than the heavens. Alive in Christ. If you're in Christ... His work is your work. 
It's a strange thing to articulate because it's somewhat of a mystery. However, it's graspable. If you are in Christ, his work is your work. Just like being in a plane, the plane's work is your work when you're in the plane. And you don't have to flap your wings to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. When you're in the plane, it flies for you. And when you're in Christ, he is your righteousness. When you're in Christ, he is your salvation. You don't need to work your salvation. You don't need to do good deeds for your salvation. Your salvation is in Jesus Christ. Now, when you're in Jesus Christ, he enters you and he changes you. And guess what? He begins to actually do the real work of righteousness in and through you. So now love begins to cascade through you. So the way that you can hallmark one who's in Christ is that the life of God begins to stream forth out of them. So it's not the absence of a changed life. It's the presence of a changed life that proves that we're actually in Christ. But what are we when we're in Christ? Well, Christ went to the cross. And if you're in Christ, guess what? When he went to the cross, you went to the cross. And his death is your death. Paul says, I, was cru- I am crucified with Christ. You could say the same. Though you live 2,000 years after that event, you can say with confidence, his death was my death. I am crucified with Christ. My old man no longer lives. And when he was buried, you were buried. But when that stone rolled away, his life is your life. If you're in Christ, you have life. And that life is, yes, eternal, but it's also inextinguishable, indestructible, indissoluble. You are clothed in life, the life that cannot be stopped, cannot be hindered, is everlasting and endless. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The God of the living. You know that it's very clear in Scripture that God is not the God of the dead? When you die, he's not the God of the dead. I know that sounds funny, but he's the God of the living. Those that serve him live. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Moses was saying that the dead are raised. It's his argument. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. You may die, but you live. God will raise you again. You can never die when you're in Christ Jesus. His death was your death. And now all you have is life. And even though this mortal body fades away, you have life. And it's eternal. And it's endless. This resurrection is so far beyond my comprehension. I feel like a little kid with a matchbox car trying to talk about the real car. And I'm trying to describe it to you. And I'm lifting this little puny thing up. Yes, it is in the right shape. It's the right color. And it has the same look. But the real one's bigger. That's what I want to say. If Jesus was preaching on the resurrection, it'd be bigger. It'd be better than this. This stinks. And yet, God has condescended to allow us to hold up our little understanding and proclaim it. Oh, Lord Jesus, may our eyes be open to see. 
May we know, may we behold this cross and this empty tomb. May we truly see with the eyes of our soul the high and exalted King of Kings. May we see you in your position, your everlasting, endless position at the right hand. All things are under your feet. You have been given authority over all things. And that which once belonged to the devil belongs to you. So Lord Jesus, come, return, and take in this natural realm all that is yours. Come, Maranatha, come and return and set your feet on the Mount of Olives and divide it asunder. And may you claim your rightful position and may you gain your rightful due. For though you did taste death for all of us, you rose again and you live and you are risen. You are risen indeed. Death and sin no longer have a grip upon our life. Hades no longer is a threat to our soul. We are found in Jesus and the power of the second res- resurrection. There is no death for us. When the judgment day comes, we are found in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done and what you've worked, for it is a marvelous miracle. May we see it more clearly. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.